Now, on the Ave Maria Radio app, the prayer section, where you can listen to the Holy Rosary. All four mysteries are voiced by Christ as the answer and Father Knows Best host, Father John Ricardo. Are you struggling to remember specific prayers for pre- and post-confession, reciting the Stations of the Cross, or prayers during Eucharistic Adoration? It's all there, word for word, and within a few clicks, under the prayer section on the Ave Maria Radio app. Download it on your smart device today. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered Him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making Him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. If you're hungry for that encounter, if you're dying to know the love of God, which alone makes sense out of life, if you're longing to know that you matter so much, and that His power can fill you with all that you need so that you can be the man or the woman that you want to be. And join me and dig into the Scriptures and the teachings of the Church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. The Theology of the Body book and teachings evolved from five years of homilies that Pope St. John Paul II delivered at his Wednesday general audiences at the Vatican. The teachings were developed and translated into a myriad of languages. Now taught worldwide, they're a significant part of the rich treasury of teachings the Church has released on sexuality and the family over the past century. Father Ricardo studied them extensively while earning his licentiate in sacred theology at the Pope John Paul II Center for Studies on the Family in Washington, D.C. This is the fourth and final talk that was presented to a group of young adults. It is intended to serve as an introduction to the theology of the body. Here is Father John Ricardo with, In the Age to Come, Either Married or Given in Marriage. Give a little bit of a review of where we've been. Hopefully by now we all remember that, at least for me, the easiest image to remember the theology of the body by is a what? A triptych. Right, and a triptych is this kind of three-paneled image, huh? Center panel, one on the right and one on the left. And the Holy Father uses that as uh, something like an image for trying to help us understand the three central passages that he's going to use as the launching pad for all the things that he's going to get into in the theology of the body. And those three central passages are Matthew 19, where Jesus gives the um, discussion as to uh, divorce, gets into the question about divorce with the Pharisees. Then Matthew 5, which comes from the Sermon on the Mount, where he starts talking about blessed are the pure of heart. And then tonight we're going to look at Matthew 22, which is a discussion with the Sadducees. And these three images, again, to review correspond to three different um, ways of categorizing man, that is to say, the human person. huh? So the first passage, Matthew 19, refers to what he calls original man, that is, you and I as we were created to be from the beginning. And then he jumps from Matthew 19 to Genesis 1 and 2 and looks at the stories of creation and what we learn from the stories of creation as God reveals those in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Matthew 5 has to do with what he calls historical man, which is also known as the man of lust, which is you and me. We're the man of lust or the person of lust. This is not only the human person after the fall experiencing the inclination to selfishness and to concupiscence. That's the kind of the bad news. It's also man and woman who's been redeemed by Christ. And so we spent the last session looking at the effects of the redemption in our life that Jesus has, in fact, given to us real, substantial grace. 
which enables you and I now to live again the plan which he intended from the beginning, even though we don't live it as easily as Adam and Eve lived it before the fall because of the fact that we're inclined to selfishness, uh, concupiscence. But we can live it. So historical man is not only the man of lust, but it's also redeemed man. So we got three different ways of identifying that. And then lastly, the third image of the triptych, Matthew 22, is what he calls eschatological man. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, the end times, man of the end times, or you and I as we will be in heaven. And we've learned so far that each one of us has inscribed within us, what I've put down on your outline is either the law of the gift or what the Pope calls the nuptial meaning of the body. Anybody want to take a stab at telling us what that means? We are made for communion. We have inscribed within our very makeup that you and I are made for communion with each other. Why is that so? Because you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. And God is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist in, always have, are now, and always will, this communion of persons, which is their relationship. In other words, we could say that you and I are inscribed to make of ourselves a gift to another, a sincere gift of ourselves to another. And the Holy Father in the passage that he quotes in everything he writes from Gaudium et Spes, one of the documents in Vatican II that he was so influential in helping to shape right, always reminds us that the only way you and I can find fulfillment is by seeking to make of ourselves a sincere gift to others. And that Jesus actually opens that up for us in the incarnation by becoming man for us. He puts that into flesh, we could say, and acts out here on this earth as a means for you and I to understand that that's what we're made for. That's how we find happiness. Contrary to everything in our culture which tells us we find happiness by getting things. And we know from our own experience that that might suffice for a little while, but it never works. Because I have within me and you have within you an appetite that is insatiable. I want far more than the world can give me. And far more than any other person can give me, as great as that person might be. This becomes something of the challenge in marriage, oftentimes, because in marriage, I think I've said in here before, marriage does two things simultaneously that seem to be at odds with each other. It both satisfies you and it leaves you hungry. Because here's another person in the flesh who actually manifests to me something very concretely of the love of God, which is an incredible gift to really have a relationship of vulnerability with another person who knows you as, in fact, you really are, not as you appear to be, but as you really are, and they still love you. That's a great gift, and it brings great satisfaction to us. But it's not enough. The human heart is made for more, as great as that is, and as God-given as that is, and the more is God. So um, this law of the gift, which is in us, has been weakened in us by original sin, going back to historical man. And the weakness that we have impairs within us what we might be able to call our capacity to recognize in the other person, in fact, a person. So Adam and Eve, remember back in Genesis, before the fall, when they saw the other, knew, that's what I'm made for. I'm made to give myself to you, to be in an authentic relationship with you. That was just something which they lived with. Would that men and women could live with that same reality today? But of course, that's not the reality that we live with today. We live in the reality of seeing in the other someone that we can manipulate and exploit and use for our own personal advantage or pleasure or gain. That's the weakness that's in us. That weakness can be overcome by God's grace, which is genuinely given to us, concretely given to us, 
because you and I actually participate in the effects of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So even though we don't readily perceive, as Adam and Eve did, that the other is a person, we can do that. And that's something like the drama that you and I have to live out in this life, to not succumb to concupiscence, which is in every bone of my body. And this law of the gift will be fully restored in heaven, which is what we're going to look at tonight. Maybe just a couple of words before we look at that. We're going to look at um, a couple of passages in particular tonight. The passage that Jesus or that the Holy Father reflects on about um, marriage in heaven, which is where we get our title tonight, namely that there is no marriage in heaven or that the sons and daughters of man are neither married nor are given in marriage in heaven. That's found in three places in the Gospels, Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. It might also be worth looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe we'll mention a couple other passages as we go on. Let's read that passage so we have it in our mind as we start. I'm going to read it from the Gospel of Matthew. They're a little different in each of the three, but we'll use Matthew. It comes from uh, chapter 22, beginning in verse 23 through 33. It says, The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, ha ha ha, to which of the seven will she be wife? For she was wife to them all. Remember, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, only accept the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament now. They only accept from Genesis through Deuteronomy as inspired. And their argument to Jesus was, in these five books, we don't see anything that talks about a resurrection. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's quoting from Exodus here, which is the second book of the Bible, a book that they would have accepted as being inspired. And then he comments on that, saying, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. One of the things that I think in reading the Holy Father on this passage that really stands out for me is um, he almost seems to allude that there are a number of modern scripture scholars who have as their mode of operating the same mode that the Sadducees had. And the same accusation and indictment which Jesus gave to the Sadducees might be applicable to some of the people whose lives are picking apart God's word as revealed in scripture. Namely, they're wrong and they do not either know the scriptures nor the power of God. These are the people who, in opening up the word of God, begin to pick it apart as opposed to when they open it up, let it pick them apart. And that doesn't mean that we don't do serious scholarship by any means. What it means is that when we read scripture, we always keep in mind who the author is. God uses instruments in communicating his word to us, huh? So we have to take into consideration the times in which people lived. We have to take in consideration the language which they use, the ways in which they used to speak to each other, uh, the images which were prevalent around uh, the area at the time. 
Those are the instruments, and the more I can understand the instrument, the deeper I can understand the meaning. But the author is God, and he's not the author of anything else we read. He is the author of Scripture, and Scripture is given to us from the Lord to transform us. And so the more that you and I can spend time with passages, particularly in the Gospel, but in all of Scripture, and really ask the Holy Spirit who breathed this to breathe onto us and to help us understand what it is that God wants to reveal to us, then the more you and I become who we were made to be. The moment I take Scripture out of my life, I'm left without an anchor. And I now decide for myself and pick and choose what it is I'm going to believe and not believe. And that means that ultimately you're lost. So the Sadducees had deprived God, we could say, of his power in the way they read Scripture. And even as we read the Lord saying that to the Sadducees, it's something of a good opportunity for us to examine our own lives. First of all, to ask ourselves again and again and again, am I spending time every day in his word, which I have to do? And if I am, am I realizing who the author is? And am I letting him breathe onto me and transform me? Or am I reading it as a dead text? So hopefully the, the Holy Spirit will, if nothing else tonight, inspire us all to uh, come to a, a fuller understanding of all that the Lord wants to give us in his word. Now, having said that, let's turn our attention to the fulfillment of the law of the gift or the nuptial meaning of the body in heaven or to the last panel of the triptych, eschatological man, which is really to ask, what are we made for? So why even bother with this? I mean, it's kind of a long way off, hopefully, for a number of us, heaven. For some of us, it's not. For some people on I-96 tonight, as they were on their way home, it's a reality at least the few who died in the traffic accident, which some of us heard about on the radio on our way here. Heaven is no longer something long off in the future for them. Please God, it's present, because the alternative is not a good one. So why do we do this now? Why, Why look at the life of heaven? And what does it have to do with you and me as we live our lives now? Is it just something that's supposed to scare us into making sure we go there, or is there something for us here and now? And for me, I think the way to understand that is, I only understand something by knowing the end for which it's made, or the purpose for which it's made. So if somebody gives me a football and I try to roll out dough with it, that's not what a football is made for, huh? Not a cookie roller or a flour roller. It's a football. It has a completely different end for which it was made. It's made to be thrown. It's made to be carried. It's meant to cross the goal line or split the uprights. That's the end for which a football was made, huh? Or a hammer. A hammer has an end for which it was made. Not to put in my ear. It's to pound something. And the problem for so many people in our culture today is we don't have a clue what the end for which both the body and the person are made for. And if I don't know the end, we end up not knowing what to do with it now. You do what our culture does, and you just live for pleasure, which makes sense if you don't know the end. When you know the end, things begin to change. So hopefully in looking at this, the payoff, what's in this for me, is not simply understanding what's going to happen at the end of my life, or we could say at the beginning of my life when I really begin to live, the life of heaven, but learning how to live and how to interact here and now with the body which God has given to me and entrusted to me. And maybe uh, it's important to remember here that you and I are pilgrims. That's why I say our life as quote-unquote parishioners. Parish comes from a word that's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament in Greek for exile. Stranger, alien, foreigner, and pilgrim. So the parish of St. Anastasia that meets in Troy is the exiles who meet in Troy 
at a place on John R. between Waddles and Long Lake. We have with us exiles from St. Hugo's, exiles from Holy Name, exiles from a number of different places. But that's what we are here in this life. We're exiles. This is not home. And I don't think we can ask the Lord to remind us of that enough because the things in this world, because he made them, are so good that they can keep our attention from the ultimate good, which is to be with him. I know for me anyway, I can't possibly think about it enough. We often end up thinking that heaven is something like an afterthought. But every part of life has a goal. Parents have a child, and the, the moment they have the child, or, you know, after the glee wears off, some people that I know, it's like, we got to get him into the right Montessori program. we got to start teaching him three languages. we got to prepare him for sports. we got to get him into a good preschool program. we got to get him into a great grade school. we got to find a great junior high for him. we got to get him into, a, you know, a good high school. we got to help him to prepare, get AP credits, so when he goes to college, he can already have some credits to get out early so he can go to grad school sooner. we got to get him to grad school so that he can get a great job so he can help pay off the debt that we're going to be in for him going to school. When he gets into a career, he gets into a career, he's trying to get ahead. We're always trying to have a goal in mind, you know? I'm going to join a team. Before I join the team, I'm going to do some weights. I'm going to run. I'm going to get in shape so that when I get to the team, I can be the captain. Once I'm the captain, I want to try and take the team to win. Once we win, we've got to do it all over again. There's always a goal. And yet somehow, life itself has no goal for many people. Segments of our lives have goal. My career has a goal. My studies have a goal. My musical training has a goal. My uh, sports discipline has a goal. But somehow life, nah, life has no goal. Well, life has a goal. The goal is heaven. That's it. What does it profit a man, Jesus says, to gain the whole stinking world and lose your soul? If you and I do not gain heaven by God's grace and our cooperation with his grace, then our life was an absolute and utter failure and disaster and for all eternity will be. So we have to keep the goal in front of us. And just like you don't win a gold medal for showing up at the Olympics, and you don't win a state championship for strapping on a helmet, and you don't graduate tops in your class in law school by buying a notebook, so you don't gain heaven without competing. This is not a given. It's a given on his end. Everything that God needs to do for us to get home is done. That's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. But you and I are trying to appropriate that and to live that way every single day. And one of the ways that we do that is by calling to mind the end for which we're made. Part of the challenge for some of us is how we think of heaven. Because our images of heaven hardly make you want to race to get there. Clouds, harps. Think of how we pray for people who've died at Mass. What's our prayer? May they rest in peace. That doesn't do much for me. I'm all up for rest, especially right now. I'm a little tired. But I don't want to spend eternity lying on a couch. Heaven seems like a celestial coma for many people. Whereas, you know, life is about the here and now. I've got all these activities to do. It's fun. I've got interactions with people. There's things to do. There's places to see. My senses are constantly experiencing reality. I'm alive. And then all of a sudden, I'm resting in peace. I don't want to rest in peace. I want to live. I mean, I want to really live. Some of that's a challenge, I think, to us in the church to find better ways to pray for people, perhaps. May they enter into the fullness of life, or, or however we do that. But also for ourselves, and particularly if you've got children or grandchildren, to help foster within them a better understanding of heaven so that it looks like something you might want. I mean, Scripture over and over again is laced with images of the life to come in such a way as to try to attract us and arouse us to want to go there. One of the images is a banquet. I love to eat. Rich, juicy meats, 
Choice wines. I like that. I'm not a vegetarian. It's fine if you are. I'm not. I like the image of rich, juicy meats and choice wines. It does something for me. But the Lord uses all sorts of different images to uh, try to get to us. So in terms of what we're talking about with the theology of the body, going back to the law of the gift and the nuptial meaning of the body, we could start by saying heaven will be something like the place where there is no longer any conflict within us between our flesh and the spirit. Heaven will be the place where you and I are finally in a real and total possession of ourselves. That sounds pretty attractive to me because I ain't there yet where there will no longer be any opposition between the flesh and the spirit, and where there will be a harmony between those two dimensions of our lives. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his bodily resurrection from the dead, huh? If he doesn't rise bodily from the dead, we might as well all go home and do whatever you want. He didn't rise in theory. He didn't rise in spirit. His idea didn't live on. He bodily rose from the dead. That means I've got reasons to trust him, It also means that his resurrection helps me understand and anticipate something of what's going to happen to me and to you. So, what will be the same in heaven? And how do we know this? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, one of the passages is worth looking at. That's where Paul, in his letter to the Christian community at Corinth, speaks at length, not only about the reality of Jesus' resurrection, but about our own as well. And the first thing I think that's helpful to get in mind and uh, to realize about the life of heaven is you'll be you. I mean, you'll really be you. You'll be you as you were intended to be. You won't melt into this big blob that is God and lose your identity. You won't lose your individuality and your own subjectivity. You won't forget the life that you lived on earth. You'll be you. But you no longer with any conflict between the flesh and the spirit and you now in total possession of yourself. And you'll be you with a body. You will be bodily for all eternity, whether that's in heaven or in hell. You and I will be bodily. The body and the soul are inseparable. They are together what make us to be who we are as persons. Jesus still has his body. He took it with him when he ascended into heaven. He ascended bodily into heaven. He still has the wounds in his hands. The revelation of uh, St. John on the Isle of Patmos, the last book of the Bible, where he sees in uh, chapter 5, The image of a lamb who has been slain. Well, that's Jesus. He is the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. He's known on this earth after he rose from the dead by the apostles, and he's known in heaven by his scars. They help to identify him. He is bodily in heaven. Our lady was assumed how into heaven? Spiritually? No, bodily into heaven. That anticipates our own bodily resurrection into heaven. You and I always will have a body. And it'll be something like the body of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' own resurrection helps us to understand our own, which is to say there'll be continuity with this life. I mean, the apostles did recognize him, although they don't recognize him at first. Scriptures seem to indicate that Jesus prevents them from recognizing him. It's almost like he puts a veil over himself, and then he pulls the veil away. And they're only able to recognize him either through his scars or, like the disciples on the way to Emmaus, through the breaking of the bread, which is the Eucharist, huh? Or in other scenes. So there'll be some continuity, and yet there's some discontinuity, too. I mean, Jesus walks through locked doors. I can't do that. That's something to look forward to. You're not bound by space and time. I think it's uh, C.S. Lewis who uses the image that, in the same way that you would never imagine from looking at a sperm and an egg, that what will come of this combination is a mature adult human being. 
So you can never imagine the glory of a resurrected body. And yet there is a real continuity between them. A zygote becomes, as it continues to develop, huh? it's not a potential person, it is a person at that stage in life. That is what a human being at an early age looks like, at the earliest of ages looks like. And that same human being is now meat. And this human being that you see now before you is going to be something else in heaven, but it'll still be me. 1 Corinthians 15 uses the image of, you know, you take a seed, you put it in the ground, and you got this little dinky seed. It doesn't look like there's anything there. It's tiny. It's all enclosed. Put it in the ground. You manure it. You put some water on it. And boom, all of a sudden you got a rose bush. Or you got a tree. Or you got whatever it is that you're growing. You don't have a rose bush. This doesn't come from a seed. But you get different things from these really tiny, simple, humble beginnings. So it is with us. You and I tend to think that this is the mature person. But it ain't. There's something much better yet to come. Blessed be God. And so because you and I will be both body and soul in heaven, one of the other things that will be the same in heaven is that you right now, if you're a woman, will be a woman in heaven. And I, please God, I am granted their access, will be a man in heaven. We are for all eternity, male and female. That won't end. That's God's plan for us. It was his choice out of his love to make us as we are. And we are through and through male and female. So what will be different in heaven? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of answers to that in that last image of the triptych in Matthew 22. What will be different in heaven? There's no marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. So in Jesus telling us this, it helps us understand that the fact that you and I are male and female means that being male and female isn't bound to marriage and procreation. That marriage and procreation belong to this world and to history. But that in heaven, even though we will continue to be bodily and we will continue to be male and female, there is no marriage in the fullest understanding of this law of the gift and what the Pope calls the nuptial meaning of the body. Pope says that heaven will be a completely new state of life. Duh. <laughs> With due respect to the Holy Father, huh? <laughs> He's not listening, I'm not worried. How so? Father Walter Shue, I've mentioned this book before, it's called The Splendor of Love, which is a uh, really exhaustive and very in-depth and critical look at the Pope's theology of the body. I know there's an awful lot of books that continue to come out. This really is, to me, the best book that's been written on the theology of the body that I've seen. Um, the Splendor of Love, John Paul II's Vision for Marriage and Family. One of the great things that he brings to this is Father Shu is um, very steeped in philosophy, which shouldn't put you off. It actually helps you understand because he's able to make critical distinctions in the way that we need to make distinctions when we're thinking about things. But as you're reading this, you're not going to get blown away by philosophical terms. The gift of a great teacher, I think, oftentimes is that you have no idea how intelligent he is. He's very intelligent, and you're not intimidated by him. So I can't recommend this enough. He breaks down this completely new state of life into six categories or six things. So I'm going to use and follow his uh, articulation. The first thing he says that will be different about the life of heaven is that there will be, this is the Pope's term, a spiritualization of the body. This is what Jesus means when he says, we will become like the angels. To become like the angels does not mean that you will be pure spirits, which is what the angels are. You and I are male and female. Jesus rose bodily. You and I will rise bodily. So to be like the angels doesn't mean that I'm no longer going to have my body. That image is very prevalent still in our culture. It certainly comes from Eastern thought. It's very much Greek thought, which sees the body as something like the prison of the soul. 
And that what heaven will be or the end will be like for us is the soul will finally be freed and released from the trappings of this flesh. But when you live with that kind of mentality, that means that the body then has no ultimate purpose, which means you can disparage the body and you do with it whatever you want in this life. That's the flip side of that. The body's going with me forever. Therefore, I don't disparage it here and now. It has intrinsic value to it. And yours has intrinsic value to it. So you can never use me and I can never use you as a mere means to an end. So to have a spiritualization of the body does not mean that we will lose our bodies. It means um, that there will be something of the triumph of the spirit over the flesh. Remember Humpty Dumpty? Well, we're Humpty Dumpty. I mean, we really are. We have had a great fall and have been broken to pieces. And the effect of the redemption is that we are now put back together. That's something which has happened already and yet is not yet fully experienced. In heaven, it will be fully experienced. Now you and I have to constantly fight and battle against the inclination to selfishness and concupiscence. In heaven, no more fight. We'll be in harmony. That'll be a wondrous thing. So we're no longer all in pieces. Eschatological man, the Pope says, will be free from the opposition of which St. Paul speaks in uh, Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I end up not doing. The things I don't want to do are the very things that I end up doing. Most of us can relate to that pretty easily. If you don't think so, ask the person you live with. They'll be glad to help you realize that. Or your friend or your co-worker. We have that opposition within us. Well, in heaven, no more opposition. So in the resurrection, the Pope continues, the body will return to perfect unity and harmony with the spirit. Man will no longer experience the opposition between what is spiritual and what is physical in him. It is a perfect spiritualization in which the possibility that, and then he quotes Romans 7 again, another law is at work with the law of the mind, that possibility is completely eliminated. This state, which as is evident, is differentiated essentially from what we experience in earthly life, does not signify any disincarnation of the body, nor consequently a dehumanization of man. On the contrary, it signifies his perfect realization. So heaven won't be becoming less human. Heaven will be becoming fully human. You know, at Christmas, we ponder the reality of the incarnation that Jesus is one person who is fully God and fully human. And people often speculate on, you know, I can't imagine what that would be like. I don't know what it means to be fully God. Well, you and I don't even know what it means to be fully human. We haven't yet lived a fully human life. Because we're dealing every single waking moment of the day with this opposition between the flesh and the spirit. In heaven, that'll be gone and we will finally be perfectly us. That's why I think you've heard me say in here before, my friend uh, who I know back east says, I'm looking forward to purgatory. Because in purgatory, I will finally be getting freed from all those things that keep me from loving the way I really want to love. That keep me from being perfectly me. I have the end in mind, but the things I want to do... I don't often do. And the things I hate, I often end up doing. That means I'm less than fully human right now. That'll be gone and done away with, and I'll be fully human then. That's the first dimension of this completely new state of life. The second is what's called the divinization of the body. This is a, a very prominent idea in Eastern Christianity. It comes from, among other places, Peter's second letter, the first chapter, verse 4, where Peter says that we have been made to partake of the divine nature. What was the serpent's lie to Adam and Eve? If you eat this, you will become like God. Well, the real perversion of that is that was God's intent from the beginning. God's intent for you and me is to share in his own life. That's the plan, to be divinized. The Pope writes, Participation in divine nature, 
participation in the interior life of God himself, penetration and permeation of what is essentially human by what is essentially divine, will then reach its peak so that the life of the human spirit will arrive at such fullness which previously had been absolutely inaccessible to it. This new spiritualization will therefore be the fruit of grace, that is, of the communication of God in his very divinity, not only to man's soul, but to his whole psychosomatic subjectivity. The divinization, then, that God offers to us, this participation in the divine nature of God, isn't just something that transforms me spiritually. Somehow, the essence of God, his interior life, will be experienced by me in my body. That's extraordinary. Which also helps us understand, again, the dignity of every human person, because that's the end for which every human person's made. Every body is made to experience in a psychosomatic unity the interior life of God. Therefore, I can never use that body which has that end in a way which treats it with anything less than love and respect, or my own. The third dimension of this completely new state of life is the vision of God. And this vision will be beatitude, or the fulfillment of happiness. This vision of God will be something where there will no longer be any hindrances in our own lives to give ourselves to God or to receive the Lord to us. Paul says something uh, pretty breathtaking in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6. He writes, The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. The body is meant for the Lord. And, get this, the Lord is for the body. Reflect on that as you go home. That's the end for which we're made. We are made bodily to participate in the interior life of God. That's the dignity of the flesh that you and I have, which is inseparably joined to the soul that is in each one of us. And this happiness, this beatitude, which comes from having the vision of God, blows away entirely every single other earthly communion of persons, however great they are. There is no communion in this life that can remotely come close to the communion that you and I are destined to have in heaven with God. Because it's between two creatures, which is one of the reasons why in heaven there is no marriage. Marriage is a sacrament, which means it's a visible sign of an invisible reality. In heaven, the invisible reality is all of a sudden visible. You no longer need the sign. It's something like telling uh, your three-year-old on the end of the driveway who's just enamored with his big wheel, I know you think that's the world right now, but trust me, the day's going to come when you're going to be interested in things that are much better than that. And the three-year-old's like, no way, this is my life. Well, so it is with us. The Lord's trying to use the experiences that we have in this life, experiences which he planned for this life, to help us understand these things as great as they are. Friendship, marriage, the communion that is marriage, as great as they are, they're infinitely surpassed by the communion that is offered to us in heaven. Fourth dimension of this new state of life is the communion of saints. So not only will you and I enjoy the fullness of communion with God, but we will enjoy the fullness of communion with each other in heaven. So you and I will be in complete unity with each other, the unity that we were intended to have, the unity which we all realize we do not yet have in this life, and that unity will be with all those who've gone before us, those we knew and those we never knew, which includes your spouse, presuming they're in heaven, or presuming you are. So it's not as if you get to heaven and forget your relationship on earth. People often fear that. That's not at all what's going on here. In fact, now because you'll be perfectly you, and he or she will be perfectly him or her, the union that you were made for, 
will finally be all that it was intended to be. But you'll no longer need to participate in a sacramental way because the reality that the sacrament was pointing to is now experienced by both of you. So it's not as if we won't have a bond with the one that we were married to in this life or that friends that we were really intimate with in this life and who really helped us experience the Lord and his goodness we won't recognize in heaven. Please, God, we're all in heaven one day at the end of days. We'll remember tonight. And you can all look at me and go, you are so wrong. (laughs) This is infinitely better than anything you could have described. And it is. I mean, Paul says, no eye has seen, quoting Isaiah, no ear has heard. It hasn't even dawned on you and me what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even conceive of the life to come. It is literally beyond words. And yet we have to try to find some way to articulate it. So the friendships that we have in this life, the marriage that we have in this life, won't end in heaven. They will be fully all that they were intended to be because we'll be in that perfect communion with each other. Which now, because of sin, we can't be in. And because of concupiscence, we can't be in. Fifth dimension. Kind of going back to um, something that we said first with the spiritualization of the body, you and I will be perfected. And you and I will be perfected. I personally will be perfected. Sometimes the image I think people have of heaven is something like uh, we're all little balls of lead and God's like this big melting pot and we just get tossed into the big melting pot and we disappear and become part of the big blob of lead. Well, that's not heaven. You'll be perfected. The name that you have is the name that you will have for all eternity. And your personality will be the perfected personality in heaven. All those quirks that you have and that I have, but all redeemed, no longer sinful. In the last dimension, which is most applicable perhaps to what we're talking about, in heaven we will experience the fulfillment of the nuptial meaning of the body. So what's the nuptial meaning of the body mean? That we're made for communion. The ultimate communion that you and I are made for is not with each other, it's with God. That will happen in heaven. Good as our communion is with each other on this earth, you and I in heaven will have the communion that we were intended for, which is with God. And so the nuptial meaning of the body will finally be entirely fulfilled. And at the same time, there will be no more marriage. Both of those work together. Because you and I will still be male and female, which is a way of revealing to us that we're made for another, made to give ourselves to another, made to receive another. And that will happen perfectly in heaven. And yet there won't be marriage. So the Pope says, this is a pretty long quote. In speaking as he did to the Sadducees, Jesus did not state that this man of the future world will no longer be male and female. It is clear, therefore, that as regards the body, the meaning of being male or female in the future world must be sought outside marriage and procreation. The original and fundamental significance of being a body, as well as being by reason of the body male and female, that is precisely that nuptial significance, is united with the fact that man is created as a person and called to a life in communione personarums, or the communion of persons. Marriage and procreation in itself do not determine definitively the original and fundamental meaning of being a body or of being as a body, male and female. Marriage and procreation merely give a concrete reality to that meaning in the dimensions of history. This will be a completely new experience. Again, no... (laughs) At the same time, it will not be alienated in any way from what man took part in from the beginning. The perennial meaning of the human body, to which the existence of every man weighed down by the heritage of concupiscence, has necessarily brought a series of limitations, struggles, and sufferings, will then be revealed again. And this becomes the avenue then for the Pope to begin to talk about celibacy and virginity. And celibacy and marriage work hand in hand. 
where marriage is disregarded and disparaged and thought nothing of, so is celibacy. Where marriage is thought highly of, so is celibacy. One of the things which should alarm you who are married or who aspire to be married about the attacks on the clergy, I'm not talking about the sins that they've committed, okay? But the attacks on the clergy is that is also very indirectly an attack on you who are married. In disparaging us who renounce marriage, they disparage you. In honoring you who are married, then celibacy takes on a greater significance. Why? Because then celibacy is understood to be, in fact, the giving up of something which is a great, great good. In fact, a sacrament, a means by which God reveals here on this earth something of his love for us, and whereby a man and a woman actually participate in his love for us by the exchange of their lives with each other. So virginity is the definitive realization of the nuptial meaning of the body because everybody in heaven will live a virginal state because there is no marriage in heaven, even though we're still male and female and even though we're still made for communion with each other. But we will be in perfect communion with God, a communion which we will experience or a sharing in his own interior life which we will experience somehow bodily because our bodies will be divinized and a communion that we'll experience with each other, but no longer in an exclusive fashion, the way a man and a woman do who are married now, but now as we were intended with each other from the beginning in a way that has been transformed by grace and the resurrection of the body and the transformative power of God. This is one of the reasons why the church teaches as she does regarding the celibacy of priests. It's true to say that um, there are ordained men who are validly ordained men particularly in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, who are married. So there is nothing that would prohibit a priest necessary from getting married in some rites of the church. They're validly ordained. Um, they're real sacraments. They're sacramentally ordained. They celebrate the Eucharist for real. And yet at the same time, it's important to understand that the fact that we live in the Latin rite as celibate men is not merely a discipline. A priest lives a celibate life for a number of reasons, one of which that the Pope's trying to remind us of right here is to point us to the life that everyone in this room will live in heaven. For in heaven there is no marriage. And so we're supposed to be a provocative sign of the life that is to come. Now that doesn't mean that I'm living the life of heaven. Trust me, I'm anything but living the life of heaven. But the virginal state is the life of heaven. And yet it's not a lack by any means. It's the fullness of relationship and communion which we're intended for. That's one of the reasons I wear a ring, a wedding ring, is to help people understand that a priest is not experiencing a lack of relationship. He's in a relationship. And he's not only in a relationship with the church, he's in a relationship with the church's bridegroom, who is Christ, who is calling us all to communion. Many people certainly think of the life that consecrated priests or religious live as the absence of relationships. And certainly there's the absence of the exclusivity of a relationship of marriage. But this is anything but a lack of relationship. It will be in dire trouble if I'm not seeking to live an intimate relationship with God, just like you will be in dire trouble if you're married if you're not seeking to live intimately with your husband or your wife. When intimacy dries up and you no longer make the effort to be vulnerable with each other, the eyes start looking elsewhere for ordained and for married. It's the same challenge. So we have to be careful to keep alive within our lives a real healthy sense of intimacy which does not mean sex. The world only understands, at least our culture, only understands intimacy as sex. Most sex, for many people, is anything but intimate. So in the kingdom, we will live that life where we will be given entirely to God and will be in perfect communion with each other. Pope says, The reciprocal gift of oneself to God, 
a gift in which man will concentrate and express all the energies of his own personal and at the same time psychosomatic subjectivity, will be the response to God's gift of man to himself. In this mutual gift of himself by man, a gift which will become completely and definitively beatifying, as a response worthy of a personal subject to God's gift of himself, virginity, or rather the virginal state of the body, will be totally manifested as the eschatological fulfillment of the nuptial meaning of the body, as the specific sign and the authentic expression of all personal subjectivity. In this way, therefore, that eschatological situation in which they neither marry nor are given in marriage has its solid foundation in the future state of the personal subject. This will happen when, as a result of the vision of God face to face, there will be born in him a love of such depth and power of concentration on God himself as to completely absorb his whole psychosomatic subjectivity. Part of the problem, I think, in trying to grasp this is, in marriage, I see concretely the person who is before me. Now, you and I are left with seeing dimly, if at all, the one who is awaiting us in heaven. But that won't be an issue in heaven. You'll see him. And so the unknown will be known all of a sudden. And we have to hold on to the Lord's promise to us that heaven is not some lack or deprivation. It is the fulfillment of everything that God has given to us and that we've begun to experience and anticipate here on earth. And therefore, need not think in any way that the life to come will be somehow less than this and the most blissful of relationships that we have on earth. The life to come will be the abundance of life that only Christ can give us and that you and I now in our bodies and our souls the way they are because of sin can't handle. That's something to really look forward to. That should be enough to provoke us for some questions. I'll throw it out to, uh, to you in the audience. Uh, what becomes of the spirit during the uh, time between our death and the time where it says that the body will be raised up on the last day, which you know could be many, many, many eons away? What becomes of the spirit or what becomes of the body? Well, let's say the body, before they're united again. Um, good question. We know, we know two things. We know that there will be two judgments for us, an individual judgment or a particular judgment and a general judgment or a universal judgment. At the individual judgment or the particular judgment, which will happen when I die, my soul and my body will split. That's one of the, the penalties of, of sin and death, huh? is that that's something which is inseparable all of a sudden separates. You could say, quote, unquote, momentarily, although the person is now outside of time. So I don't know how you actually factor that. It becomes somewhat complicated to actually dive into. But the soul then, my soul or your soul, stands immediately in front of God and is judged. And upon judgment, which is a true judgment of who I really am, and as to whether or not I've accepted the Lord's grace in my life and tried to live accordingly or walked away from him and turned my back definitively, then my soul goes to its eternal place of um, life or death. So either heaven or on its way to heaven through the purgative process of purgatory or to hell. Then at what's known as the general judgment or the universal judgment, which will be when the Lord returns. So the individual and the general judgment will be the same for some people. Those who are alive when the Lord returns will experience the universal and the general judgment at the same time. Huh? Those of us who've died before the Lord returns, when he does return will be the general judgment, at which time the body and the soul will be reunited. And then the body will join the soul in its place of eternal whatever. I won't say rest because I so denigrated that term earlier. <laughs> eternal delight or eternal punishment. What the body's doing in the, in the mean, quote unquote, in the meantime, it's decaying. From dust I came to dust I will return. But you need not get hung up about that as to, you know, 
better to die in the prime of life so that when my body joins my soul again, I'm going to be in good shape because uh, the body will be resurrected and transformed. So does that somewhat help? As to what the body's doing, the body's dormant. It's subject to decay. You open up a grave of someone who's died six years ago, there's nothing there, or there's little there. Can you pass the individual judgment and fail the general judgment? No. Okay. <laughs> like your soul was in good shape, but man, now that your body's here, you're going to hell. No, you don't have to worry about that one. <laughs> good question. You don't get like, you know, A over F. Remember those grades in English? Yeah, great content, terrible composition. <laughs> when we go to heaven, assuming we will, you say we're going to be spiritualized and divinized. Question is, when Jesus was here, was he fully human in those terms when he was on the earth? Uh, say more about that. What are you asking? When we go to heaven, we will... Our bodies, you know, our persons will be fully human. Right. In the fact, you know, in those six dimensions. Dimensions. When Jesus was here as a human, was he has had he already gone through those six dimensions with his body here? Okay. Remember, Jesus is a divine person. He's only one person. He's the eternal Son of God, who at the incarnation, when Mary says yes to the angel Gabriel's announcement now weds a human nature so you know at christmas we always think of it as the birth of christ but it's really not the birth of christ it's really the marriage of god and humanity that's what's happening in the virgin mary's womb is god and humanity are being wed the son of god is the, is an eternal person the eternal person now takes to him a human nature which is divinity is cloaked by one of the things you can think of in the Gospels in a particular way would be the Transfiguration. So the Transfiguration is, is really the only glimpse that we see in the Gospels of the Lord pulling away the veil and letting the disciples see his majesty shine out. The rest of the time, it's cloaked. He enjoys the beatific vision. I mean, he, he is in communion with the Father. They're of the same substance. Huh? That's what we say in the Creed. One in being with the Father. So they're always one in being, even though they're two different persons. One of the ways you can think of it is he does not use his divinity as a means to escape from the limitations that you and I experience in life. So today's reading at Mass from Hebrews, the first reading was the Son of God has taken flesh and blood just like you and I have, and he knows what it's like to suffer and to be tempted, to experience all temptation and live a fully human life just like you and me save sin. Therefore, you and I have reasons to go to him. So he never uses his, his divinity as an opportunity for advantage. Think of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when Satan comes to him. The Lord, you know, it would be uh, less than easy for Jesus to turn stone into bread. And he's really hungry. Another one of those duh moments in the Gospels is, you know, Jesus went out in the desert to be tempted by the devil and fasted for 40 days, at the end of which he was hungry. No! <laughs> you know, of course he was. Well, even in his hunger, he doesn't draw upon his divine majesty to sate that. He experiences what you and I experience. So this is something that he's living. He's living in the fullness of communion with the Father. And yet, in one hand, you might be able to say that he's, he's not quite living in the fullness of communion with the apostles as they're walking with him because they don't understand him yet. So on their end, because there's still something in them that needs to be transformed, there isn't yet the communion that will be experienced by us and him in heaven because on our end, there's a block. 
or on the end of those who are walking with him here on this earth, save Mary, there was a block. Does that begin to get to the question? Thank you. Good question. Let's ask the Lord's blessings on us tonight, shall we? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation which is offered freely to every man and woman on this earth. Lord, we thank you for the gift of our faith. We pray that it would continue to transform us, that you would continue to fan into flame the gift that you have placed within our hearts, that you would set our lives on fire so that we might bring the aroma of your Son into every situation that we find ourselves. We ask your blessings on us tonight. Keep us and all those whom we love safe. Prepare us even now for the life of heaven. All this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. God bless. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, we heard Father John Ricardo with the fourth and final of the introductory talks to Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. The title of this was, In the Age to Come, Either Married or Given in Marriage. This has been Christ is the Answer, program number 790. For a CD of this or any of our programs, online go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 790, Theology of the Body, number 4. Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a non-profit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio. All you